Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Dennis, author of the book, The Full Employment Horizon in 20th Century America, The Movement for Economic Democracy. Mike, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Mark. Nice to be here. Well, we're glad to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Uh, sure. Um so I'm a professor at Acadia University in, in Woolfield, Nova Scotia, and I have been for some 22 years. I did a PhD at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Uh, but interspersed in that uh, experience, in that period, if you will, uh, was a period when I was unemployed. So I was you know, finishing the PhD and looking for work in, of course, a very tight labor market, uh, which is characteristic of, of academics. And I was struggling to you know, do one course here and one course there. And finally, the courses dried up and I had to find work um, uh, in the travel industry, believe it or not. But that took a while. So in some ways, I do have a bit of a kind of a personal dog in the fight in that I have uh, experienced, if you will, the sting of unemployment that I talk about. And it wasn't pleasant. And so um, as many academics can, can uh, relate, um, getting a job, certainly a tenure track job, is a pretty big deal and is uh, certainly better than the alternative. So I did, in fact, work in corporate sales for a while in the travel industry and turned out to do pretty well at it, frankly. So uh, it was odd. <laughs> it was odd that, that uh, it wasn't the disaster I thought it was going to be. But anyway, that's sort of a, a personal uh, kind of uh, vignette, if you will. Hmm. What led you to write a book about uh, the full employment movement in the United States? Right. Well, I mean, um, a lot of my research at that point was focused on sort of the Hollywood left, progressive intellectuals, and the building of a series of networks and organizations that advocated for essentially the expansion of the New Deal in the, in the 1940s. And I was particularly interested in the Hollywood Independent Citizens Commission for the Art Sciences Professions. Um, a bad acronym, but important organization. And it featured a lot of leading lights, playwrights, screenwriters, uh, some cases producers, directors, actors. So I was very intrigued with this. Um, but what kept coming up in sort of the literature, but more importantly, the archival sources around 1944 and 45 was this question of full employment. And I was curious about this. I thought, why are they interested in something so clinical as full employment? And I sort of dove into this rabbit hole, if you will, a little bit deeper and started to discover that the people I thought um, who were primarily interested in kind of cultural questions, the cultural angle, if you will, vis-a-vis the New Deal, were also quite um, immersed in and conversant in political economy, uh, which is an area of, of peculiar interest to me, in particular interest to me. And so I started to realize that if, if they were interested in it, and if people in their kind of middle-class, uh, white-collar organizations were interested in it. This must have had kind of deeper roots. This must have had deeper resonance. And as I began to 
peel back the layers of the archival sources in particular, I, I realized I was onto something that in fact, this, this push for full employment, this desire for a job guarantee was not uh, the ephemera of 1944-45, but in many ways the culmination of social forces that have been developing for some time, and which these groups, like the Hollywood Independent Citizens Committee of the Arts, Sciences, and Professions, was aware of and sensitive to. And so I ended up um, kind of shelving that project, Mark, and, and moving into a, a much fuller examination of where this came from, the origins of this, um, and, and eventuated in this book. So that, that project I'm now returning to. But it was it was the avenue to looking at full employment a little more seriously. Hmm. It really is a fascinating topic reading about it in your book and it, I, the origins of it. Uh, I, I it's fascinating how I mean on one level it's, it has its obvious origins. You know, right. it comes yeah. out of the Great Depression. But I was really intrigued by how it was how you, you trace its origins to almost the beginnings of the Great Depression. That it's not a product of say. Uh, 1935 or 1933 or even 1931, right. but you see elements of it as far back as 1930, when a lot of historians feel the Great Depression hasn't really begun. We're still talking about a recession. But even at that point, you're seeing people talking about this idea. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about its origins and what did they mean by full employment and what was it that they were trying to achieve with this uh, idea? Right. I mean, in many ways, I see it as kind of uh, a legacy of the progressive era, a legacy of that kind of, of dream to achieve a more rational and, and productive and democratic society and economy. And so when it comes to looking at some of the people who are kind of the key engineers of thinking about full employment, um, we're looking at people who are sort of steeped in that milieu, steeped in that literature and steeped in that dream, if you will, that somehow we could overcome the irrationalities of industrial capitalism it's waste, it's recklessness. And, and, you know, keeping in mind, of course, that some of the people who are more economically minded are already tracking the downward trends and, and the downward indicators uh, by 1927 and identifying that we've got some problems in the housing market, for example, in the automobile industry, for example. And perhaps this great bonanza of the 1920s is, is not all it's cracked up to be. Um, but it strikes me that in many ways, the Great Depression was this opportunity to sort of um, explore once again the progressive promises that had been stimulated, if you will, by the Wilson administration, by the Roosevelt uh, campaign, uh, by intervention in the First World War. And so there is this kind of sense that um, that a group of intellectuals, writers, thinkers, economists, analysts, institutional economists um, were primed to explore these problems and that in some ways um, the collapse gave them the opportunity, opportunity, but also a certain kind of degree of legitimacy. It's okay now to talk about the unemployment problem. It's okay to kind of address it concretely. It's not something that's been erased, if you will, um, by the ostensible job growth of the 1920s. The idea of full employment, again, takes some time to sort of um, uh, coalesce. And you have a number of economists, thinkers, Rexford Tugwell, George Sewell, for example, who are using kind of uh, different terms, different notions. But in many ways, it's something that, that comes from the, the school of institutional economic thinking, the idea of how do we achieve maximum production? How do we, how do we take, if you will, the capabilities, the full kind of productive capabilities of industrial capitalism? How do we harness that? And how do we kind of uh, utilize its, you know, sort of its, its engine 
um, in order to produce the most for the greatest number. At the same time, you know, put to work those who are clearly being left behind. So there's this kind of institutional economic thinking. How do we get institutions in American society? How do we coordinate them, organize them, if you will, to produce more efficiently, to produce um, more productively, and to produce in a fashion that's going to finally kind of get at those pockets of unemployment that have persisted despite, again, you know, the, the, the apparent kind of great capitalist heyday of the, of the 1920s. So it's something that's emerging gradually uh, from a number of different sources, thinkers, people writing for New Republic, people who are advisors to various kind of planning organizations, people close to the administration, people on the margins writing for the nation. Um, but the terminology is slowly kind of coalescing to the point where full employment becomes kind of the standard um, um, terminology, the, the mantra, if you will, of people. Very, very much like um, the basic income, the, the guaranteed basic income today. Yeah, it's actually a, a point I was, I was about to get to, which is as I was reading that uh, th- those initial chapters, I, I, I was struck by how uh, you show how a lot of this it, we're talking about ideas that we discuss today. Yeah. That, that these were not new ideas like supply side, demand side, but they were so they were very current in the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. And, and how full employment was, uh, in, in one sense, a, a rejection of supply side thinking in the 1920s and saying that, you know, through employment, we get demand and through demand, we can boost the economy. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, they're wrestling with classical economic thinking. Um, institutional economists, uh, progressive economists are really wrestling with the kind of economic orthodoxy of their own day. And, and looking at the situation saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, this, this, this arrangement that we have uh, is, is not, you know, is not working. Um, Say's law is, is not working. You know, if you build it, they will come. That's not, that's not working. Um, we need to be able to stimulate uh, demand. We need to look at the problem of underconsumption. We need to, frankly, tackle and question some of the, the dominant um, notions, the dominant ideology of the day, because in many ways, that was exactly what the Hoover administration was wrestling with. They were wrestling as much with an ideology as with kind of questions of fiscal and monetary policy. It wasn't just the gold standard. It was the whole question of, hey, wait a minute, can the federal government play some role in engineering some massive recovery? Can we intervene directly in the economy and the labor market and make some sort of effective change? Can we stimulate uh, effective demand without, you know, driving up uh, prices and more importantly, inflation. So in some ways, those people that you're referring to uh, are wrestling with that whole question. How do we uh, critique an ideology that has um, proven to be incredibly resilient and has been at the root, if you will, of perpetuating this kind of problem, this dilemma of, of plenty amidst want, the old Henry George problem? Mm-hmm. And yet, as as relevant as as it, these ideas are to some of the economic issues that we've discussed in our own lifetime, right. the other thing you, you really invoke about this period is how different the environment was. And I'm not just talking here about the Depression, sure. but you also talk about how the organization of the working class really plays a role in terms of bringing this debate to the forefront. It may not necessarily be something that is, uh, you know, at, at, you know, being you know, called upon as the as the first you know, part of the New Deal platform, or being talked about on on, on the you know uh, Democratic Party uh, 
uh, right. you know, campaign platform of, say, 1940. But you talk about how there's this, there, there are all these people out there that are really pushing for this and, and selling it to uh, hundreds of thousands of Americans and, and making it a, a, a very uh, uh, you know, dynamic political demand. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, um, because it really is at, at the heart of the book is, is that I didn't want to get trapped in a discussion only of intellectuals, economists, however heterodox they were and however kind of contrarian and, and, um, and uh, unorthodox uh, they were. Um, I wanted to, to link it to how ideas become uh, a reality, a policy initiative, how they become, how they gain traction. And clearly that's happening in the early 1930s with the unemployment councils, with the activism of the Communist Party, with the resurgence of the labor movement even before the National Industrial Recovery Act, uh, with the sort of, again, the, the outbreak of agrarian rebellion, um, with the, the evidence that there is a fair amount of discontent that we don't have simply huddled masses accepting their situation, but we do have mobilization at the grassroots level to demand, for example, additional relief from the state, but also from the federal government, marches on Washington. So those groups are really putting the whole question of unemployment on the public agenda. They are politicizing, right, unemployment uh, in a way that um, uh, George Sewell, for example, uh, really couldn't, um, despite, you know, his, his sort of his, uh, his um, audience, if you will. Here you have people who are saying, here are the immediate effects, here are the immediate consequences, if you will of policy decisions we've made. Here are the immediate consequences of an economic system that we have built. What are you going to do about it? State government, local government, municipal government, federal government, ultimately. And again, this is how you see people questioning the shibboleths, questioning the, the dominant norms, questioning the, the ideological inheritance that they have received, and I would argue have been inculcated in. It's happening at the grassroots level. And you're seeing then this kind of um, um, this cross-fertilization between the thinkers, between the economists, between the advisors, between the planners, and those people at the grassroots level who are really demanding, if you will, a response. These efforts really do seem to be reflected in how this issue of full employment remains on the political agenda into the 1940s. And obviously, you have a lot of concerns as to whether or not the Great Depression has truly ended, uh, you know, whether or not it's going to end uh, at once the uh, Second World War is concluded. Yes. But it's, you also just describe how a lot of uh, political groups like the CIO PAC and how politicians like Senator James Murray are ensuring that this is something that that is going to be you know part of the political discourse as they're dealing with issues of the economy of employment and of you know basically you know keeping America out of the Great Depression after the 1930s. Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, there there's a kind of uh, momentum that is developing on the left wing of the Democratic Party, and there is a again a kind of um, cross-fertilization and a close uh, dynamic connection between the CIO and then the CIOPAC, kind of a political action wing of the CIO, uh, and the Democratic Party. And it's all part of a kind of what many historians have described as a sort of popular front movement to promote a more egalitarian um, economy, a more egalitarian society, to advance the, the objective of, of economic democracy. So I think it's important just to remind ourselves that, you know, in 1940, you still have this incredibly high rate of unemployment, some 14%. This is after all of the efforts, the WPA, the CWA, all the sort of efforts, you know, FEPC, it's come later, but the, the efforts to intervene directly 
in the um, job market, and still you have this nagging, persistent unemployment. And so you have, uh, again, a, a group of organizations and individuals who are cognizant of this. They still have the memories of the Great Depression. And yet, as we get into wartime mobilization, you know, as we get into the United States directly intervening in the Second World War, we're seeing that rate come down, tumble down dramatically. And, and it is a, a, a transformative moment. It's, 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 a, it, it's a revelation. It's, it's you know, an opportunity out of crisis, if you will. It's the sense that, again, hey, wait a minute, you know, um, it may not be terrific that we have to intervene in the Second World War, but this massive mobilization on this scale is driving down those unemployment rates. It's putting people to work both through the Army, but also in munitions industries. It is tightening those labor markets. It's answering the questions that we have been trying to wrestle with and have been wrestling with in the 1930s, particularly around the question of the Works Progress Administration, which, of course, was, if you remember, dramatically cut back in 1937. This leads to the Roosevelt Recession. Ah, and many commentators and, and intellectuals will say, you see, we have to think seriously again about deficit spending. So these ideas are percolating. These ideas are, again, kind of gaining traction, and they're gaining traction in the midst of the evidence that it is possible for the federal government to effectively banish the specter of unemployment by taking the kind of action that it is taking, which is putting people to work through direct job creation. And so this is on the one hand exciting, but also daunting. So as we move into 1944, 1945, there are growing concerns about conversion or reconversion. What is the United States going to look like after the Second World War? Um, remember too, of course, that you're seeing, uh, you know, the Roosevelt administration making overtures to the idea of the four freedoms, freedom from want, for example, being the most exciting for those concerned about unemployment. You're seeing uh, state agencies like the National Resources Planning Board uh, mapping out very, very visionary notions of promoting social democracy and um, economic development and more importantly, economic planning. And you're seeing, again, the CIOPAC advocating for a very ambitious vision of economic planning, convinced not only that it's possible to continue the kind of job creation that had started with mobilization, but also that it was imperative to do so because of the political forces that were aligning against the expansion of the New Deal. Cue here the importance, of course, of Henry Wallace, his era of the common man, his advocacy, again, for many of the key sort of ingredients of this social democratic agenda, his advocacy for full employment, his opposition to the conservative forces within the administration, and his opposition, along with the opposition, of course, of organized labor, to the fact that big business has done very well. Uh, cost plus contracting, for example, has worked out very well. The Roosevelt administration has been very generous to big business. They have been co-opted and have found a way to uh, recover profits and perhaps more importantly, recover cultural prestige, prestige, social authority, and increasingly political power. And so there's a sense that not only is there an opportunity, but we also have opponents. We have those who are who are our adversaries, who are determined to get rid of the OPA, okay? the Office of Price Administration, who don't want a, a Fair Employment Practices Commission, for example, that would advocate for um, racial equality, for example, that don't want the National Resources Planning Board and effectively organized to get rid of it. So Congress does get rid of it. So there's a sense that there is a Republican and Southern white supremacist segregationist alliance developing here 
that threatens the expansion of the New Deal in the post-war years, that threatens to stymie and to hamstring our efforts to go beyond what we'd accomplished in the 30s, to really kind of reinvigorate, if you will, the New Deal, to, to make the four freedoms a reality. This gets to something that is rather surprising. I mean, the opposition is not too surprising because right. you are seeing uh, Amer- you, you, you describe how there's a concern about what employment is going to, you know, what, what such rights are going to mean in terms of uh, blacks in the South, yes. uh, what it's going to mean for uh, business operations. And yet it's stunning how you describe the rapidity uh, of the of the collapse that takes place. I mean, January 1944, uh, Franklin Roosevelt gives his uh, State of the Union address. And he, he talks about the uh, Second Bill of Rights or the Economic right. Bill of Rights, and yeah. it's right there at the forefront: the notion of a jobs for everyone. And that, yet, you describe that you know barely two years later, it's already receding from the political stage. It, how was the opposition able to succeed so quickly? And 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 what happened to the forces that were pushing for this uh, notion of full employment? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Um, uh, the ideas uh, have gained traction. You see this kind of endorsement from the president. You see this sort of excitement, if you will, within the administration. Um, you see a kind of grassroots mobilization around these ideas. And yet at the same time, you also see um, you know, the growing power of, of business to, to call the shots once again, um, to, to say, listen, you know, uh, we still you know, uh, command, if you will, the, the, the heights of economic power. And we'll begin shedding jobs, and we'll begin, um, you know, terminating employment, and um, getting rid of contracts, and and not using our facilities to produce, you know, for the, for the public. Uh, so what you have then is a kind of growing sense on the part of business that these ideas are more than just ideas. This is a real threat. Um, you know, the CIOPAC is a real threat. Um, routinely accused of of being communist infiltrated. Routinely. Uh, accused of, of, of being sort of insidiously on the side of, of the Soviet Union and, and other sort of nefarious forces. So I would argue that the, that kind of uh, red baiting, that effort to, um, to push back against progressive forces uh, is very successful. Certainly in Congress it is. Uh, certainly in Congress it is. Certainly it is also um, within the wider business community, the National Association of Manufacturers, mobilizes very powerfully, and then there are another, a number of other organizations like it that really you know, uh, are, are hysterical almost at the prospect of full employment. So they are able to craft a message saying, much like the message you know, that we receive, would receive today, that full employment will lead to this inflationary spiral, it will lead to state centralization, it will lead to effectively federal government despotism. And of course, this kind of thinking is terribly alarming to Southern segregationists. The idea that the federal government would champion labor unions, uh, the idea that the federal government would support uh, economic planning, the idea that it would promote, if you will, uh, the inclusion of African-Americans in Social Security is is deeply alarming, right? To, of course, um, not just their um, segregationist system, but their um, bifurcated economy, by their uh, you know, class um, divided economy the way in which they have been able to effectively set white workers off against African-American workers. And so there is a powerful political coalition that is developing and a coalition that is going to use the general strikes of 1945 and 46 as the justification for implementing some really punitive anti-labor legislation in the form of the Taft-Hartley Act. And so 
I would argue that what we see here is, is, a, is a classic example of class conflict. It really is playing out in a very significant fashion. But I would also submit that in terms of, of labor, um, it, it really, uh, I guess, lacked the courage of its convictions. And this goes back to some earlier research I did on the Memorial Day Massacre in a book that I wrote, um, organized labor, which is, you know, depending in many ways on the, uh, the sort of support of, and some might argue the paternalism of the federal government, is not willing to organize the kind of um, actions, all right, uh, that would send the message that full employment is indispensable, that this really is something that we need to achieve now, that this is the moment, 1945, 1946. Now, I'm not saying that, that you don't have the general strike wave, but in terms of, of what organized labor is doing at these critical moments, it's not really promoting, if you will, the kind of tactics, quite simply put, that would have put the pressure on business to say, we are determined to shift the class balance uh, in a more permanent fashion and to maintain the achievements of the New Deal. This is certainly the case around the Taft-Hartley Act. This is certainly the case in 1945. You don't see general strikes breaking out yet. Uh, they will, of course, come in, in later 1945-46. So I would argue that as much as it is a function of the rising conservative opposition, Mark, and the power of, of business now aligning with white supremacists, there is also a failure of nerve among sort of the leadership of the CIO um, to take the kind of steps necessary to hold the Roosevelt administration and more importantly, the Truman administration accountable. You also point out that in the background, you do have an economy that is uh, doing quite well uh, compared especially to the 1930s and how this really seems to remove a lot of the urgency from the notion of full employment. It's no longer the sense of there's this ongoing economic crisis or this potentially looming economic crisis that has to be confronted. As you explained, though, throughout the 1950s, this notion is still alive. And then at the end of the decade, it gets uh, gets a new life from a very interesting quarter. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it is intriguing. I mean, uh, there, there is a kind of um, uh, economic miracle that's happening, uh, in part because of New Deal programs in the 1940s, and this pent-up demand that is going to sort of tamp down some of those anxieties and begin to put Americans back to work by 1947, despite the, the spike in inflation, despite the remarkable downturn in employment. It does begin to rehabilitate the American economy. Of course, military spending is going to stimulate the U.S. economy as well, most importantly, the Korean War. But yes, by the time that we get to the end of the 1950s, you're seeing a kind of uh, resurgence and you're seeing it in the form of an African-American civil rights movement that is recovering the kind of economic language and idiom that had been central to the civil rights movement in the 40s. Remember, of course, that this kind of thinking, this critique of capitalism, uh, becomes subversive and dangerous um, and, uh, and, and, and dubious uh, during the height of the Cold War. But as we're moving into the 1960s, you're seeing a, a greater willingness on the part of, of leading civil rights figures, A. Philip Randolph, for example, Bayard Rustin, and a group of socialists um, that are sort of in this camp, and African-American trade unionists to say, hey, wait a minute, we, we want to achieve racial equality, but the premise of that has to be uh, economic justice. And so you do see this kind of developing initiative 
It's developing momentum that will lead to the march on Washington, the march for uh, <clears throat> jobs and, economic, and, and also racial justice, for economic rights and also full inclusion. And, and that kind of thinking then is going to continue to percolate throughout the course of the 1960s, producing, of course, the freedom budget, Leon Kaiserling being a key um, proponent of that, but also A. Philip Randolph and Baird Rust and others um, advocating for, again, a massive kind of intervention in the U.S. economy that would address the persistent nagging unemployment among African-Americans, but also among other groups as well. Uh, pockets of, of unemployment and poverty, for example, uh, in Appalachia and West Virginia. And so there is a kind of renewed interest, a, a kind of rejuvenation that's extending beyond the logic of inclusion, extending beyond the logic of uh, sort of stripping down the barriers to admission and moving toward a structural analysis of the U.S. economy. And of course, Martin Luther King Jr. Will, will be a pivotal figure and a leading proponent of this kind of thinking. Absolutely. There's another aspect to the, the uh, debate over full employment during this period that I think also is, is a very interesting component, which is that they're not just talking in terms of jobs. In ter right. there, it's not just, you know, any job will do. Right. But you see during this period a notion of the, the quality of work. And this is, I, I find, I found to be especially fascinating to read, given how nowadays we have, and this might be too sharp of a word, but we've romanticized the notion of industrial employment, that we've right. made it right. this the idea that the, these were great jobs that were lost. As you explained, that part of the conversation was taking place was the notion that people hated those jobs back then. And there was a yeah, desire yeah. not just to employ everyone, but to employ them in something that was seen as less uh, demeaning, uh, less, uh, uh, you know, debilitating than, you know, the, the regimented industrial workforce that, that nowadays we, we've come to think of as some sort of ideal. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, Harvey Swatos on the line, uh, 1957 is, you know, is, is really critiquing that, that reality, um, and as you're pointing out, it's critiquing, you know, um, the kind of growing willingness to idealize these factory jobs, which could be, as you pointed out, uh, demeaning, dehumanizing, um, you know, uh, regimenting. And by the time we get into the 1970s, we in fact have strikes uh, on the part of, of workers uh, at Dodge and, and elsewhere uh, and GM uh, against precisely that kind of work environment. So it is interesting that that critique of sort of industrial capitalism is, is permeating sort of the most advanced and progressive full employment thought really since the beginning, really since the, the early 1930s. The idea is not simply to put people to work in poor paying exploitative jobs that are demeaning, but to imagine, if you will, a fundamentally different kind of landscape in which people have power on the job, the power to craft, if you will, uh, better working conditions, the power to shape and, and craft the contours of the working landscape, and also perhaps to even abandon those jobs uh, in favor of, of better jobs. Um, so the, the fear of automation is certainly growing, but at the same time, there is this willingness to say, is it possible for us to create more humane, um, more civilized jobs that are more compatible with the desire, you know, for, you know, again, eight hours for what we will, uh, harkening back to the eight-hour movement. So you are beginning to see that once again uh, in the 1960s. I suppose in some ways that does reflect the kind of milieu of the cultural rebellion of the 1960s and also the new left. Uh, if, 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 you know, we want to look for a source of that kind of thinking in the 60s, 
There's no question that the Port Huron statement speaks in those terms and advocates for, okay, something better than this kind of, again, um, demeaning, dehumanizing, sort of narrow um, industrial world and industrial reality in which people only have, right, their leisure time for pleasure. Well, why shouldn't the job, uh, why shouldn't the, the workplace be a place in which people find meaning and, and find, if you will, uh, fulfillment? And so we do see that reemerging uh, in the 1960s and very powerfully in the thought of people like Michael Harrington, for example, in the 1970s. So you have this resurgence that's taking place and it gets this added uh, impetus from the broader economic changes that are taking place. You right. have uh, right. the oil crisis, fuel yeah. costs go up, unemployment starts to go up. And it would, it would seem that this is the moment for full employment. Right. And yeah. you even have it take legislative shape in the form of the Humphrey Hawkins bill. Mm-hmm. What happens to that move? Why, why is it this sort of, why does it, this end up being something of a false dawn? I, I think, um, there are, there are two reasons, uh, and one, it, it is is kind of, uh, there is a parallel with the 1940s, and I do make this this case again and again that, that we are looking at, at a case not only of the contest of ideas, but class struggle. Um, I would submit that in the early 1970s, uh, the Business Roundtable uh, and other um, business interests, the Trilateral Commission, for example, are very alarmed, right? by the democratic revival of the 1960s. Uh, again, we can get carried away with kind of romanticized notions of what that rebellion looked like. Um, and uh, however we cut it and slice it, um, those protests, the civil rights movement, the emerging women's movement, the anti-war movement, absolutely represented a challenge um, to kind of the prevailing um, interests and to uh, powerful uh, uh, groups of individuals and corporations. And that, that is, is, is registering in the 1970s, in particular, because as you point out, you do see a tightening of the labor markets in the early 1970s. You are kind of approximating a kind of macroeconomic full employment. Workers are becoming emboldened across the Western industrial world, not just in the United States. They're going out on strike uh, in these, again, wildcat strikes in the tens of thousands, postal strikes, for example. They're deeply alarming to capital. It seems as if a combination of kind of social protests, government policy, maybe the Great Society, is is kind of generating a willingness to contest and challenge our power in a, a very direct fashion, and we need need to do something about it. Remember too that um, the the reputation of, of business is running quite low, uh, at least among the new left and progressive forces. Uh, when we get into the 1970s, you know, we've had years now of, of the new left critique, but also of the, of the counterculture and his critique of, again, the man in the gray flannel suit, corporate America, a hierarchical, demeaning, dehumanizing America. That's speaking to young workers now who are simply unwilling to accept the kind of discipline that you were mentioning before, Mark, that's characteristic of the 1950s factories. And so there is a genuine kind of upswing in working class rebellion that's also led by militant African-American workers who are determined not to take the status quo any longer, not to mention also a new generation of Latino, African-American, and women workers from across the racial spectrum who are demanding equality in the workplace, demanding inclusion in labor unions. And so there is a genuine struggle going on that seems to kind of ogre uh, the achievement of something as ambitious as the Humphrey Hawkins bill. And yet, at the same time, what you don't have is the kind of organization at the grassroots level. You don't have the kind of 
militant minority that you had in the 30s. And this is really a key ingredient in explaining how things change in the 30s. Those socialists, those communists, those Trotskyists, those left Democrats who were organizing at the plant gates, who were handing out leaflets, who were showing up on picket lines or getting their heads cracked by police, for example, who were organizing marches on Washington, who were really challenging capital at the point of production, not just in the streets. That's not materializing. That's not happening. Uh, and, and one could theorize that perhaps the, the, the misery just wasn't high enough, that, that there wasn't a widespread suffering, a widespread uh, uh, calamity. I, I would also submit as well that mainstream organized labor doesn't do a very good job of getting behind as much as they're funding, as much as they're funding kind of formal effort to promote the Humphrey Hawkins bill. There is an unwillingness to really get behind uh, a popular movement, a popular movement that now is going to mobilize on behalf of African-Americans, women workers, and entertain the kind of state level controls, wage and price controls, for example, that might be necessary to make full employment a reality. Uh, and so again, you have a twofold kind of, I would argue, uh, failure on the one hand at the grassroots level, you know, uh, analogous to the CIO and its reluctance to test the Roosevelt administration and then the Truman administration, but then also in the 1970s to, to really, um, I guess, demonstrate the muscle, demonstrate the capacity of organized labor um, to get behind those workers who were, were going on strike and get behind a new, right, multiracial working class movement that wants not only power at the point of production, but wants to see legislation that advances the goal of a job guarantee. Uh, and, and again, you have significant forces within the administration who begin to kind of pay homage to the new monetarist ideas, the new conservative economic ideas that are gaining steam. So I, I would say this, as much as the 1930s creates an opportunity to advance heterodox ideas vis-a-vis -vis full employment, for example, aggregate demand um, policies, for example, Keynesian thought, the 1970s and the alleged crisis of Keynesianism through the OPEC oil crisis and the crisis of overproduction creates an opportunity for um, conservative economists to make the case that, you know, Keynesianism was always wrong. It's always been a problem. It's always going to create um, uh, inflation is always going to lead to, if you will, an inflationary spiral. And so we simply have to accept the fact that there is a natural rate of unemployment. And that's the trade-off, if you will. And so these ideas are, are gaining traction within academe, but also figures within the Carter administration are also signaling that they're listening to these voices and, you know, subtly and not so subtly, um, subverting the, the logic of this argument uh, and, and undermining the capacity of this bill to really gain traction within Congress. So you have the, in, in some respects, the, the failure of the full employment effort in the 1970s. And yet, as you go on to demonstrate, the idea doesn't completely go away, that right. it has a persistence That's right, yeah. that has, be, and, and it has become, if anything, more relevant over the past uh, decade and a half, as yeah. we've seen the recession and, uh, you know, the, the efforts to, to engage with, you know, it, it, the ideas has, has resurged. What has brought about this resurgence? And, and, and what does its resurgence say? Uh, uh, how, in what ways is it similar? In what ways is it different to 
if you will, the two previous movements in terms of pushing for the full employment idea that you just uh, described in the book up to this point? Right. Um, that's a great question. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't um, uh, attribute a fair amount of, of, of credit to um, the National Jobs for All Coalition, for example, that that follows from the mobilization in the 1970s. You have a, quite simply put, a, a group of very dedicated scholars, academics, social workers, progressive economists, who were determined through the dark days of the, the 1980s, the Reagan administration, and the ascent of kind of uh, trickle-down economic thinking and policy to keep this idea alive, to, to wrestle with the problem of, of unemployment, which continues to be a problem despite the mythologies in the 1980s. As we know, of course, we have a massive spike in unemployment in the 1981-82 recession. So there is an enduring interest. And, and as we know, of course, and as I point out in other research, uh, uh, corporate downsizing is now also striking the work uh, workforce and, and not just blue collar workers. It's it's hitting white collar workers and, and, you know, coming very close to, you know, the circles that uh, that those academics uh, would have moved in. So there is a, a growing interest in, in wanting to understand and wanting to wrestle with um, this seemingly permanent crisis, right, of corporate downsizing, of corporate restructuring, of, of offshoring, of the signing of international trade deals that seem to be leading to, you know, the decimation of the ranks of of factory workers, good-paying industrial labor, et cetera. So this is really, again, percolating throughout the 1990s and the, the turbo-capitalism and the hyper-capitalism and the, the uh, market fetishism and market ascendancy of the 1990s. So, so those intellectuals, academics, scholars, thinkers, writers, journalists are doing a very good job of, of writing, continuing to publish, continuing to organize, continue to point out, if you will, and, and question the the dominant uh, mythologies or the resurgent mythologies, but I, I think it would be um, uh, historically inaccurate to suggest that that the financial crisis doesn't play a huge role. Uh, the financial crisis of two thousand eight um, really um, makes it all very very real again. Um, again, thinking in terms of the dot com bust. Okay, well the United States recovered from that and had these boom years fueled, yes, in large part by expensive credit and this housing bubble, but nonetheless, it seems as if America is back again. Uh, we're doing exceedingly well despite the international wars. Um, and so it, it is a, uh, a shock, no question, for the United States to, you know, to, to be faced with that kind of calamity, faced with, you know, a federal government that has to unleash trillions of dollars of, of money to pump up an economy, to take over banks and insurance companies, to nationalize car companies, um, again, to, to intervene massively to restore the, the banking industry, but uh, intervene massively to keep capitalism afloat. And so it, it quite simply put, stimulates a, a renewal of interest in heterodox ideas. Marxism becomes uh, popular again. Uh, you know, again, the, the whole idea of, of kind of a democratic labor movement is, is once again on the agenda. The idea of, of taking it to the streets, the Occupy movement, but so, too, the idea that the government has the capacity, if it can engage in these bailouts, if it can um, provide, if you will, the funding necessary to fight these massively expensive wars, surely those resources are available to aid those people who are underwater because of the housing crisis. No massive bailouts for them um, or for those people affected by the 
job losses that accompany it. And so there is, again, a renewed sense of this is a system that is fragile. And not just that. This is a system in which unemployment is, is, is baked in. Unemployment is something, isn't something incidental, isn't something kind of, uh, you know, um, kind of ephemeral. It is an essential ingredient of the system of industrial capitalism or post-industrial capitalism, and it is a central corrective. It has been used as the way of curbing inflation, for example, controlling a labor force, um, controlling workers, disciplining workers. So there's a renewed interest in exploring the idea of a job guarantee, full employment, guaranteeing un- uh, employment, overcoming um, the business cycle, but also willingness to kind of probe the, you know, the the outer uh, uh, perimeter, okay, the you know the outer limits, if you will, of that kind of thought. And this is a theme that I, I try to drive at in the book is that those people who engaged in thinking about full employment, however much they may have um, kind of tacitly assented to the system of production for profit and the capital system found themselves many times conceding that perhaps if we achieve full employment, we might end up creating a fundamentally different kind of America. We might end up creating a much more uh, economically democratic uh, America. We may end up, in fact, um, challenging the the power of, of capital to make these unilateral decisions. That kind of thinking, Mark, is emerging out of, of that crisis. Yes, it's benefiting from the work of people like Philip Harvey, for example, and from the, the work of people like Matthew Forstatter and the people at the, um, uh, the Levy Center and other institutes for analyzing and thinking about full employment. But it's also, I think, benefiting from the kind of collective despair and the resurgence of protests um, in the form of the Occupy movement, uh, a more militant uh, labor movement, Chicago teachers, for example, going on strike. There is a kind of regeneration of, of the working class movement um, that had been trying to kind of resuscitate itself throughout the course of the 1990s, in particular around these international trade deals, not to mention, of course, the importance of the protests surrounding the World Trade Organization in 1999. So in some ways, then, um, this idea is benefiting from that kind of growing consciousness. The evidence that Americans are, in fact, questioning um, these uh, allegedly, uh, again, axiomatic notions about unemployment, employment, who gets to determine it, who gets to hire, who gets to invest, uh, and who gets to benefit, if you will, from multilateral trade agreements and trade deals. And so what you have then is you know, this kind of resurgence that then becomes connected to resurgence of the Democratic Socialists of America, that then becomes connected also to uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign and a kind of growing enthusiasm that perhaps it might be possible to finally um, challenge the third way neoliberal thinking that ostensibly has come to dominate the Democratic Party as much as the Republican Party. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Glad to. In, in uh, what I'm doing essentially is I'm, I'm going back to the project that I shelved, Mark. So I'm, I'm going back to um, the, the the coalition of of kind of um, blue collar and white collar workers, and the, the contribution, if you will, of of kind of intellectuals, cultural figures, Hollywood actors, and others to the movement for social democracy. One of the big themes I'm exploring is is the importance of 
of middle class people as workers. And um, I'm challenging the notion that, you know, that, that the working class is made up uh, only of people who, who work with their hands. You know, uh, I think that uh, we have plenty of evidence to suggest um, that that does not adequately characterize or describe those people who find themselves uh, working for a living and, and lacking the resources, you know, to kind of do so uh, independently, who are dependent on a job. And so I'm, I'm very intrigued with this whole question of how the composition of the working class is changing. And I see that changing dramatically in the Great Depression and in the 1940s. And I see a lot of white collar uh, middle class people becoming very um, concerned and very involved in the movement to expand the New Deal. So I'm, I'm going back, if you will, um, to the Hollywood activists, but also um, to the Independent Citizens Committee for the Arts, Sciences, and Professions, uh, and related groups like National Citizens Political Action Committee, lots of acronyms, all of which were kind of in the constellation of the New Deal left, and all kind of in the same wheelhouse as Henry Wallace, and all kind of advocating for an expansion of the New Deal, an expansion that would have included um, a universal health care system. Well, it sounds like an excellent work. And uh, when you complete it, I hope we can have you uh, back on the show to talk about it. Thanks very much, Mark. Thanks for having me today. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you very much, Michael. And I hope you have a wonderful day. You too.